Good morning. I want to invite you to turn with me to the beginning of the Bible. We're going to be in the book of Genesis this morning, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In March of 2020, right at the beginning of all of the COVID quarantine lockdown stuff, John Krasinski, the guy who played Jim in the office, he started his own news network on YouTube. He called it SGN, Some Good News. And it started with a tweet he had sent out asking people to send him good news, stories of things that made people happy and made people feel good. And then he put together 10 of these little episodes from quarantine, from his own office, and posted them on YouTube, sharing good news, because it just seems like the news cycle is always so full of bad news. So he wanted to put out some feel-good stories. You ever notice that, how news headlines always seem to be about bad news, crime and corruption and all of the, the brokenness in the world, that's something that has got the attention of psychologists and sociologists, that people actually research. Why is it that the news headlines are so dominated by stories of bad news? There's an adage in journalism that says, if it bleeds, it leads. So this is a well-known phenomenon. And some hypothesize that it's because of the journalists. Journalists are just pessimistic people, and they like to report on bad news. That's their preference, and so that must be why. And others say, no, it's because we, the consumers of the media, we just have this morbid fascination with bad news. That's what we prefer, so that's what we consume and what we buy, so the journalists are just catering to that preference. Here's what I notice in looking through some of that research. All of it seems to be focused on the question, how can we get journalists to report more feel-good stories? Or, how can we get media consumers to prefer more good news? But nobody's asking the question, why is there this overabundance of bad news in the world to begin with? You could ignore the bad news and just consume all the feel-good stories. It doesn't change the reality that we live in a world where violence and scandals and cover-ups, and crime, and disasters are constant. It's all over the place. Our so-called negativity bias, as the researchers call it. It it should tell us that we all have this God-given, inescapable awareness that this is not the way the world ought to be. When things are going well, we have some sense, that's good, that's fine, that's how it should be. It's when there's some disaster that we go, That's not the way it's supposed to be, right? When you're driving down the interstate, nobody's rubbernecking at all the other cars driving the speed limit. It's when there's an accident that everybody slows down and cranes to see what happened because that's not supposed to happen. There's a reason that that gets our attention. It shouldn't be this way. The world is broken. Broken families, broken workplaces, broken government, broken education system, healthcare system, economy. The common factor in all of it is broken people, right? So it's obvious that you and I were born into a world at war. The question is, why? Why does conflict happen? Why does it happen in your own home, between you and your spouse, between you and your 
children? Why, why does conflict and drama happen in your place of work? Why is there conflict everywhere you turn? See, the thing is, bad news is not just out there, out there somewhere in the world. Bad news affects us. We get bad news from time to time. And even the stories that don't seem like they directly affect us, affect us because we share this planet with the people who are doing those things. But even more important than the question why is a how question. How can this broken world be redeemed? As Greg just mentioned, today marks the first Sunday of Advent, which means coming on the church calendar. And for the next several weeks, we're going to, give our, we're going to focus our, our thoughts and, and our affections on the glory of God revealed in the incarnation of the Son of God through this sermon series we're calling Unto Us a Child is Born. And our plan is to preach from four different Old Testament prophecies that foretold that one day a child would be born who would make right all that's wrong in the world. And what that child was promised to be and to do, that's going to be our focus as God speaks to us through his ancient word, now fulfilled. And to set the stage, I want to share with you an excerpt from the Child's Story Bible by Catherine Voss. This is how she begins the New Testament section of the Child's Story Bible. Coming out of that 400 years of silence we refer to as the intertestamental period, listen to these words. During all these years, most of the Jews were living in the land of Palestine, waiting. They had been waiting since the time of the great prophet Isaiah. They had been waiting and longing since the time of their great father Abraham. And for what were the Jewish people waiting and longing and praying? They were waiting for a child. The child God had promised to send to some Jewish mother. God first gave this promise to Eve when he said that someday one of her children would defeat Satan who had brought sin and death into the world by tempting Eve to disobey God. This wonderful child who was going to come would again bring goodness and everlasting life to man. Many years afterward, God promised Abraham that this child would be one of his descendants and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. 1,900 years had passed since that time, but during all those centuries, the Jewish people had been looking for the promised child. The great prophet Isaiah, who lived about 700 years before the child was born, foretold his coming in these words, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace." And God had sent many other wonderful promises about the child he would send. No wonder every Jewish mother wished to have a little son. No wonder she hoped deep in her heart that the long-promised child would come to her. They were waiting for a child. They were hoping for that child. And they expected that child was going to be born. The, the hope of the world was that long-promised Child, And of course, we live on the other side of that promise. That child has been born. Born unto us, which means for our sake, for our benefit, for our blessing. That child has been born to us. But the fulfillment of those promises does not render them 
obsolete. It's not like we no longer need those since they've come true. No, those promises and those prophecies still inform our understanding of who the Messiah is. They aim our expectations as we trust day after day he is ruling and reigning and he is coming again. And these promises elicit our worship. Through them, we we know with greater clarity who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so let's give our attention now to the word of God from Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 14 and 15 and focus on verse 15. And we want to give our attention so that we may know Jesus and trust Jesus more than ever today. So I want to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me out of our regard for God and his word. Genesis three fourteen and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of God. Father, we pray that you would speak to us. You spoke these words thousands of years ago, and you are speaking them today because your word is living and active. This is not an old dead word. This is a living word. May it live today and cause our hearts to trust Jesus more. Amen. You may be seated. Genesis chapter 3 is, is the headwaters, the, the source of all the bad news in the world. All of human misery, all human sin, all human depravity. It all flows downstream from what happens right here in Genesis chapter 3. At, at the beginning of this chapter, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They were tempted by the serpent to disobey God, to eat from the tree in the garden that God had forbidden They disobeyed God, lifted their fist in high-handed rebellion against him, and from that first sin, as we've seen in the book of Romans, the first Adam and his rebellion, from this first human sin flows all of the subsequent idolatry in the world, all demon worship that has ever sprung up on earth, all blasphemy, all witchcraft, it all comes from this point, all of the cheating and the lying and the stealing and the embezzling and the corruption comes out of this point, all of the disloyalty and the backstabbing and the disrespect to authority flows downstream from here, all of the murder and the violence and the abuse and the war, all sexual immorality, all pornography and fornication and homosexuality and rape and pedophilia, it all comes downstream from this moment, all of the terrorism and the tyranny in the world. So so this is a big deal, bigger than Adam and Eve even comprehended in that moment when they rebelled against God. In the account of the first sin explains why bad news is prevalent in the world. But all of that is is yet to come. That's to get ahead of the story. For now, there's one looming question in the garden, and that is, how is God going to respond? 
What, what is God going to do about this human rebellion? Back in Genesis chapter 2, 17, when God commanded Adam not to eat from this tree, he warned him, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the fact that Adam's sin leads to all of this corruption in the world makes this question relevant to you. What is God going to do about human sin? It, it matters because you and I are the recipients of bad news. We commit sin. We suffer when others sin against us. What is God going to do about human rebellion? He's already warned, in the day you eat of it, you will die. So we know sin brings death. But the question is, can God, will God, put an end to the rebellion without destroying the rebels? How could that be done? To end the rebellion would be to destroy the rebels. But then is God's plan for the world over? The answer comes in a surprising place. The first hint is found here in Genesis 3.15 in the curse that God pronounced against the serpent. Just think about that for a second. The curse that God speaks to the serpent and in order to get our bearings and make sense of this text, we need to identify who's who in this one verse. There, there are five characters mentioned here. There, there's God, the serpent, the woman, the offspring of the woman, and the offspring of the serpent. And to be clear, God is the main actor in this passage. God is the one speaking these words. And not just speaking, God is passing judgment on the serpent for his actions. Verse 14, because you, the serpent, have done this, that is, deceived the woman, cursed are you. That's what's happening in this verse. When God addresses the man and the woman, he asks them questions and they answer him. When God speaks to the serpent, he asks no questions. He just decrees, cursed are you. And it strikes me that the, the serpent can't just slither off like a, a, an exasperated parent trying to reprimand a teenager. Don't walk away from me while I'm talking to you. The, the serpent doesn't walk away. He can't. He's captured by the authority of God who is addressing him here. And in passing judgment on the serpent, God announces to the first man and the first woman and to the world that he has a plan which he himself will carry out. I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman. So one reality that should be abundantly clear to us is that God's response, in his response to that first rebellion, he is not ceding his authority over his creation or his creatures. It is his right to rule his world through his word, and he will do it. So the other main character present is the one God is addressing, the serpent. And that snake was introduced back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Right off the bat, you know this is trouble. The serpent is the one who deceived the woman who ate the fruit from the tree in God's garden. The, the arrival of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 comes with this, this ominous, foreboding presence with those words, he was more crafty than any other beast. Because up to this point in the creation account, everything is good. Everything is abundant and plentiful. It's just blessing after blessing after blessing that God lavishes on Adam and Eve. Everything God made was good, 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 and very good. And then this crafty creature shows up in the garden. 
And at this point in the narrative, all we would know is that the snake represents evil, something nefarious. But later revelation reveals the identity of the serpent as the devil himself. In fact, the last book in the Bible, Revelation 12, 9, speaks of the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Not just the first woman, the whole world. That dragon, that serpent, that devil, that Satan, that deceiver of the whole world. That, that's who God is addressing here. So if I from time to time refer to the serpent as a dragon, it's because Scripture does. And because it's important for us to remember we live in a true story with a real dragon. The third character mentioned in Genesis 3.15 is the woman. That, that's Eve, the wife of Adam. She's the one enticed by the serpent to eat the fruit from the tree. But even to call her Eve yet is actually to get ahead of the story. She hasn't received that name. So we'll come back to her in a minute. And finally, God speaks of offspring, or, or literally the Hebrew word means the seed, referring to descendants, the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of the woman. Who, who are these descendants? Fear of snakes is one of the, the biggest, most common phobias in the world. It, nobody just kind of like natural, maybe not nobody, but very few people naturally like snakes. Everybody, even children who have never seen snakes before have kind of this internal, natural tendency to, to recoil at snakes. But I, I think God is talking about more than baby snakes, the, the offspring of, of the serpent here. I, I understand the offspring of the serpent to refer not merely to baby snakes, but to humans who continue in rebellion, in allegiance to the serpent, in rebellion and enmity against God. All those humans allied with the serpent in sin against God. And here, here's where I get that. Immediately after this account here in Genesis chapter 3, we come into Genesis 4 and we meet Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. And what does Cain do to Abel? He murders him. So we have this enmity there between Cain and Abel, with Cain murdering his righteous brother Abel. And then throughout Genesis 4, the narrative traces the descendants of Cain, his offspring. And you might describe their behavior, behavior as serpent-like. The, the text narrows in on one in particular, Lamech, the, the third great-grandson of Cain. He was a polygamist and a murderer too. So we have this this clear lineage of evil, humans in rebellion against God. And then there's a change when we get to another son God gave to Adam and Eve, Seth. The offspring of the woman I take to mean those who trust in God and his promise to save them from sin and death and the devil. In, in contrast to the lineage of Cain in Genesis 4, the, the line of Seth begins with people calling on the name of the Lord, Genesis 4, 26. Seth's third great-grandson, Enoch, that corresponds to Cain's third great-grandson, Lamech. Enoch walked with God, and God took him because he pleased God. Hebrews eleven five 5 says of Enoch, he was commended as having pleased God. Enoch was a righteous man. And Enoch's great-grandson was Noah. And according to Genesis 6, 8 through 9, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So we have these, these two very different developments in human history. Offspring of the serpent, offspring of the woman. The wicked seed and the righteous offspring. 
Those are the characters here. Needless to say, Genesis 3.15 is a momentous verse. It's monumental because it's spoken by God himself. It's momentous because it's spoken by God to the foremost power of darkness in the universe. That dragon, that serpent, the devil. And it's spoken in the presence of the first man and the first woman who represent all humanity that is to follow. And it's spoken about the offspring of those first humans. All of the wicked and all of the righteous descendants to come. This verse, what God has to say here is a big deal. And if we zoom out, we see that even in the, liter- the literary structure here, Genesis 3.15 is strategically located at the center, highlighting this as God's response to human sin. Look, when God shows up in the garden, he walks through the garden, man and woman first hide themselves, God confronts the man, the woman, the serpent, and it plays out in this narrative in a structure that's called a a chiasm, which is common in Hebrew literature. It's It's a pattern that unfolds forward and then backward, like A, B, C, B, A. Picture that in your mind, A, B, C, B, A. God comes into the garden, he addresses the man, and then the woman, and then the serpent, and then the woman, and then the man. So there's a pattern there. And in a chiasm, all attention is drawn to the middle point. Man, woman, serpent, woman, man. What's at the middle? The serpent, which is confusing at first. Why would the serpent be at the center of all of this? He's the most evil, right? I think the serpent's at the center, not because he is the center, but because the spotlight is on the good news that God announces when he curses the serpent. When God cursed the serpent, he announced good news to the world. Genesis 3.15 is actually called the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first gospel. This is the first proclamation of the gospel in history because, as Charles Spurgeon says so well, it contains all the gospel. There lie within it, this verse, as an oak lies within an acorn, all the great truths which make up the gospel of Christ. Do you see them there? All the great truths that make up the gospel of Christ are packed into this verse. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, this is the whole message of the Bible. God announced his program for accomplishing that great and mighty end. That, I say again, is the message of the whole Bible from here to the very end whole message of the Bible in this verse, in this curse to the serpent, the first announcement of the gospel here is is not only structurally at the center of the literary narrative, it is thematically at the center of the entire Bible and it is functionally at the center of the entire history of the cosmos, what God says right here. So how? How is The serpent's curse, good news for the world. I'm glad you asked. Let me point out three gracious promises God announces here. Enmity, offspring, and victory. First, God promises enmity. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And because the word enmity sounds negative, like hostility, animosity, war, It's easy to read that and think, ugh, that doesn't sound good. Sounds like God is condemning humanity to this endless 
war. But pay attention to what God says. Placing enmity between the serpent and the woman, that is an act of mercy. Mercy to the humans. Remember, the man and the woman chose to join the serpent in rebellion against God. And so when the Lord God came into his garden to call his creatures to account before him, God alone stands on the side of righteousness. And the serpent and the woman and the man stand in rebellion against God. And it's crucial to have that alliance clear in our minds. God over here, the serpent, the man and the woman on this side so that we hear these words with their full effect. Listen again, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The humans have rebelled against God. They disobeyed God's word. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord so we know how they feel in their guilt and their misery. And yet God here is promising, I'm going to reclaim them to my side. I will have them back. God will not leave them as allies of the serpent and enemies of God. God is here promising he is going to work in such a way so as to transform their hearts and make them mortal enemies of the serpent. That's good news. God promises to intervene. God promises he himself will act so as to bring them, the man and the woman, back to himself. Not because they're deserving. They are ill-deserving. We know the sentence they deserve is death, and yet God is saying, I'm not going to leave them there with the serpent. Just when that crafty, beguiling serpent thought he had won humanity over to his rebellion against God, God curses him, curses the serpent. What's the curse? A mortal enemy who will oppose you until the end. That is a curse to the serpent, not to the man and the woman. And in every generation, God himself has ensured that there are humans who love righteousness and hate wickedness, who bow their hearts in allegiance to God alone, who trust God and obey God and shun evil. God has seen to it, just as he said he would do. I, myself, will place enmity. God makes it so, because he will possess a people for himself, and he himself will put it into their hearts to oppose the evil one. When God cursed the serpent, he blessed Adam and Eve, though they didn't deserve it. Next, consider the good news contained in the mere mention of the woman's offspring. We already saw chapter 2, verse 17, God's warning, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, when God curses the serpent in chapter 3, verse 15, he has not yet dealt with the man and the woman and their consequence for sin. So they're standing there knowing their time is coming. Feel the weight of that. And they're listening as God speaks to the serpent. And they hear God mention the offspring of the woman. We're not going to die today. They don't have children yet. Her name isn't even Eve yet. That is sheer grace. Can you imagine how their hearts must have soared to hear the promise of children? In his curse to the serpent, God is affirming to the man and the woman that his blessing, 
still rests upon them. Just as he told them in chapter 1, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion in it. They had rebelled against God and yet he holds unswervingly to his purpose. He will fill his world with humans who bear his image. What a promise. Third, God promises his people ultimate victory over sin and death and the devil. Look at the second half of chapter 3, verse 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. After cursing the serpent with mortal enemies descended from the woman, God indicates here the, the ultimate outcome of this hostility. The, the righteous will achieve final and ultimate victory over the serpent. N notice the, the, the third person masculine singular, he. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Not, not they, plural, he, singular. Th there will be one born of a woman who will deal the death blow to the dragon. And God even reveals here that this snake crusher will accomplish victory through his own suffering. Pay attention to the contrast. The, the offspring of the woman will strike the serpent's head. The serpent will strike his heel. The head and the heel are opposite ends of the body. To be struck in the head is to receive a fatal blow. To be struck in the heel is not. And God is showing us that the way the child will destroy the serpent, he will triumph decisively but he will do so through his own suffering. He will not emerge unscathed. He will be struck before anything else happens or unfolds in the story of God. God is already foretelling, promising, guaranteeing the serpent will be defeated. I will put enmity between you. He shall bruise your head. Which raises a question. Why would God write the serpent into the story anyway? Why is the serpent in the garden? Think of it this way. Why does any author write any villain into a good story? Why is Voldemort in Harry Potter? Why is there a dragon in Beowulf? Why is Sauron in the Lord of the Rings or the White Witch in Narnia? Why is any villain in a story? To be defeated, of course. To be crushed. That's what they are there for. St. George and the dragon would hardly be a story without a dragon. The dragon exists to magnify the glory of the dragon slayer. And so right here in this verse, at the very beginning of it all, the glory of the grace of God is first revealed. This is gospel. This is gospel. Before God has pronounced a single word of judgment against the man or the woman, God graciously promises enmity and offspring and victory. And just, just think, if the promise, if the foretelling, if, if the prophecy of the Savior was expressed with so much grace and kindness, then how much more grace is there in the fulfillment of the promise? Just talking about it before it's even happened is grace. And then to know that it has all come 
true. What was promised to past generations in hints and shadows, we. Can you believe that? You and I? Who are we? What say did you have in when you would be born in human history? You and I get to live in the time on this side of the fulfillment of the promise to know we're not waiting anymore. Not waiting for the dragon slayer to be born. He has been born unto us. He has come. And we know his name. Jesus. And we love to say his name. We love to sing his name and shout his name. We love to lift high his name. We love to pray in his name. We love the name of Jesus because we know that he is the one born to crush the head of the serpent. From his birth, Jesus epitomized enmity with the serpent. We know that darkness trembled when he was born because Herod demonically slaughtered all of the baby boys under the age of two in and around Bethlehem. When Jesus began his public ministry, he spent 40 days in the wilderness resisting, successfully resisting every temptation thrown at him by that serpent. When when Jesus went about his public ministry, he would draw near to people oppressed by demons and they would cry out in fear things like, have you come here to torment us? (laughs) They knew who he was and what he came to do. The one who embodied all of that enmity. He was the mortal enemy of that serpent. And it was Satan who put it into the mind of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus, which led to his crucifixion. Jesus is the epitome of enmity with the serpent. And though God has always preserved the offspring of the woman throughout history from Adam and Eve to today, he's always kept a righteous remnant, an offspring, plural. Jesus is the one. He is the promised seed, the one singular born to crush the head of the snake forever. What Adam and Eve did not know is that God planned to send his own eternal son to be that child. Hebrews 2 in the New Testament says it like this, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That is our humanity. He partook of our humanity so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And Jesus was struck down. But when he rose from the dead, he dealt the death blow to death itself. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2.15 says of him, He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Those are supernatural, spiritual forces of evil. He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What a savior. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with a a pointed question. This this, this text raises a question. Are you at peace with God and his people through faith in the savior he promised? Are you at peace with God and his people through faith in the savior he promised? Through Genesis 3.15, God intends to engender faith in Jesus. That's what this verse is meant to do. It's what it was meant to do from the beginning. What do you do with a promise? You ever seen that children's book, What Do You Do With an Idea? A, A great concept for a book. What do you do with a promise? Do you know what to do with promises? You believe them. That's what they're for. You trust them. 
You put all of your hope in them. That's what Adam did with this promise, the the very first promise of a Savior, the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. What did Adam do with it? He believed it. Look at Genesis 3.20. This is after now God has cursed the serpent. God has told the man and the woman what their judgment will be. After that, judgment has just been pronounced. That wraps up in verse 19. Verse 20. Very next verse. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve sounds like the Hebrew word life giver. Life giver. In the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. God just said to Adam, last thing that happened in the narrative, from dust you have come, to dust you will return. Chapter 319. What's the first thing Adam does? He names his wife life giver. How could he do that? How could he be so audacious. Why would he have any hope that she would give life to anyone? Because he heard the promise in the curse to the serpent, and he believed it. How else could we explain why he named her Eve? There's nothing else in the text that would give us any indication that he would have hope like this, except that God told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and your offspring and hers. And Adam believed He trusted the gospel. From Adam and Eve thousands of years ago down to you and I today, the people of God have only ever been saved one way, by trusting God's promise to send a snake crusher. That's it. That's how Adam was saved. He believed that gospel. That's how Abel was saved. He believed that gospel. He was righteous and his brother hated him for his righteousness and killed him. This is the good news that triumphs over all the bad news in the world because Jesus has triumphed over sin and death and the devil. So, are you trusting in Jesus today? Are you trusting him? Are you relying on him? Are you trusting Jesus alone? Where are you placing your hope for your security, for your joy, for your peace, for your contentment? You know, we we say this all the time, everybody is trusting something. Right now, the world is full of people trusting their 401k, the government can turn things around, maybe the economy will improve, trusting in relationships, romance and sex, trusting in substances, trusting in stuff. Everybody's looking to something for satisfaction. Where are you placing your hope? Those who trust God's promise, God's promise to defeat all sin and evil through that dragon slayer, Jesus All who trust that promise enjoy peace with God. Everyone else is at war with God. Romans 5.1, as we just preached through recently. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. On account of Jesus, his righteous life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection from the dead, God mercifully pardons all your sin and he counts you righteous in his sight. He clothes you with the righteousness of Jesus just like he clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of an animal slain for them when they knew they were naked in the garden. Those who trust in God's promise, his promised Savior, they enjoy peace with one another, peace with God's people, 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. 
And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. When your sins are forgiven, then you can be at peace with those in your home, those at your place of work, those in your church. And if you're at peace with God, then God himself has put enmity between you and the serpent. Listen to Charles Spurgeon again. He who is born into this world but once and knows nothing of the new birth must place himself among the seed of the serpent. For only by regeneration can we know ourselves to be the true seed. It means to save us. And how does God deal with us who are his called and chosen ones? He means to save us. And how does he work to that end? The first thing he does is he comes to us in mercy. And he puts enmity between us and the serpent. That is the very first work of grace. Have you experienced that work of grace in your heart? If so, then you're no longer a slave to sin. If there's some sin dominating your life, look to Jesus who has crushed the head of the serpent at the cross, triumphed over the grave. He means for you to be free and not enslaved to any sin. And it also means that you should not be surprised if and when the world hates you. Some Christians get up in arms like, oh no, what is this strange thing that's happening? People don't like us. 1 John 3, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. That's true. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised. Take it as a sign that God has put enmity between you and the serpent. And if you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, then you share in his triumph over that Dragon. That, that's why Paul can say to the believers in Rome at the end of his letter, Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You plural, you believers in the church. Why? How? Because he has done so in Christ Jesus at the cross. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So this Advent... Remember that the snake crusher has come. He has come. And he has been exalted to the highest place. And God has given him the name that is above every name. And he is now today ruling and reigning until, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, until all his enemies are made a footstool under his feet. He is worthy. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are the one who rules victoriously, triumphantly. And what a victory you have won. And it is our joy. It is our privilege to share in the spoils of your victory and to receive the blessings that are ours through you, by grace. We know we don't deserve any of this. Father, thank you that you have made such wonderful promises to your people from the beginning and that you yourself have fulfilled them. All of your faithfulness in the past just strengthens our expectation in your promises for our future. And so we say together, come, Lord Jesus, come. We long for your return in glory. 
Amen.